recovering here. I've been uh, pretty sick all week, but by the week's standard, I'm very healthy this morning. Um, so I'll be uh, probably a little more subdued than usual, I know, and uh, I'm usually pretty subdued anyway. So, so I hope you had coffee, this is what I'm saying. Um, you know, I've actually uh, I've struggled this morning because I've got uh, a unique problem. I've written like nine different introductions, and I promise I'm not going to give them all to you. Um, but I have to choose on the fly here. And I'm wondering uh, how many people have listened to either a Bearcats football game, Bearcats basketball game, or Bengals football game on the radio. That's good enough. We're going with that one. So... The radio announcer is Dan Horde, and he does this segment at the end of each game where he has a category called Unsung Heroes. So he goes over the, the statistical leaders. He says, you know, Andy Dalton threw for three touchdowns and 350 yards, and that, that has, that's just an example that's never happened. Um, <laughs> and it, 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 what's that? Prophecy. It's prophecy, yeah. Uh, and... <laughs> And then there's the running back and the wide receiver. And then he picks an unsung hero, someone who made a difference in the game but doesn't necessarily show up in the stat line. And he'll pick an offensive lineman. And he'll say, you know, the defensive tackle on the defense is the best in the league. And he was coming at Dalton from his blind side and he couldn't see him, but he never got sacked by that stellar defensive player. So the real hero of the game is the left guard or the left tackle. And so he'll point out this unsung hero. And that's what we have uh, in the text this morning. Because I know when you saw on the, on, the, on the sign this week that it's Shifra and Pua, I, I'm sure some of you were like, oh, them again. But <laughs> the rest of us, the rest of us were like, who in the world are Shifra and Pua? And their names we don't hear a lot, but we should hear them a lot. And the reason is, uh, is what you'll see this morning. And so one of the issues that I want to tackle this morning is um, I had a friend named Scott in uh, St. Louis. We're going to call him Scott. It's not really his name. Um, but he was a carpenter, and he was an excellent theologian. And I know this sounds like I'm talking about Jesus, but I'm not. But he went to, all these, he went to uh, church. He was very active. He read lots of theology, but he was not a seminary student. He was not a pastor. He was just a carpenter. And for this reason, he always was made to feel like a second-class citizen in church or in the kingdom. It's like, you, you know, you, it's nice that you do carpentry, but your spiritual work, it, you know, it's not, it's not spiritual work. It's not kingdom work that you're doing as a carpenter. And I think a lot of us kind of get this impression, and actually this ties into Reformation Sunday. This is something that was uh, held deeply in belief prior to the Reformation, and Martin Luther saw the value in every vocation. No matter what you do, it doesn't matter. There's no sacred secular divide. Whatever work you're doing can be kingdom work with a big if. And we're going to read about that this morning. Uh, And so today we're going to read about two women who uh, play a huge role in the Bible's history. And we already heard about Moses uh, earlier in this series, and this is the prequel. Right? This is, Hollywood would love this. You know, the first one comes out, and then we do the prequel. Um, so if you would just join me in prayer, and, and while uh, I'm praying, feel free to turn to Exodus chapter 1 in your Bibles, or it will be on the screen, and I'm going to read it to you. 
Father God, we just thank you for uh, this time this morning that you've gathered. We thank you for the powerful witness uh, of these faithful women. Uh, and we, we pray that you would uh, just bring this word alive to us this morning and that you would speak to us and that we would uh, have hearts and minds that are ready to receive what you would say. We ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen. Now, starting in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, See them on the birth stool. Uh, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, and you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. So we have to ask, uh, as we read a story like this, uh, what is the author trying to tell us? Because there's a couple odd things about this story. Uh, <clears throat> and um, to the original audience, there's a really obvious omission, something that should be there and isn't, and there's a really weird inclusion, something that shouldn't be there but is. And I wonder if you, if you noticed it. So it would be common in an ancient text uh, for a king, especially a powerful one, to be mentioned by name because of his importance. But in this passage, the king does not get a proper noun. He's just lowercase king. Isn't that kind of weird? And if you've read Genesis, Genesis names kings, it names foreign powers. Even later in the Bible, it will name the kings of foreign powers and the prophets. Uh, but here, it does not name the king. Now that's a weird thing to leave out, and it wasn't an accident. And it's extremely uncommon in ancient narratives. It's more common in the Bible than any other ancient narrative. Uh, but it's extremely uncommon, even in the Bible, to name uh, women characters. Because paper was precious, and in most ancient societies, uh, women were thought of as lesser or treated uh, as such, and so they were left off of documents. Um, but this uh, story decides to name two women who are midwives. So it leaves out the name of a king, and it includes the name of two midwives. So that's a mystery, and we have to figure out why they do that. And the only clue we're given is that twice the midwives are given credit for fear of the Lord. 
As far as the author is concerned, that's what sets them apart and above the king of Egypt. The king of Egypt is working against God's people. He doesn't matter. In God's view, in this story, uh, he doesn't matter. The women matter because they fear the Lord. So it's, uh, it's clear that the author defines a person's significance not by their gender, not by their race, not by their vocation or any other human metric, uh, but by a person's relationship to the Lord. Now, that's, that's, that's just the beginning here. Um, now, so Pharaoh does not fear the Lord, so we implicitly learn Pharaoh's not important. And so it would not be a stretch for us to say uh, that Moses intends for us to pick this up as the theme of the entire book of Exodus. He's, he's laying this out at the beginning, uh, and before we consider anything else, we have to take a moment here uh, to actually just look at the story itself and marvel at the courage and bravery and faithfulness of these two women. And in a sense, in the, in the redemptive history sense, the full story of the Bible, uh, Moses was born as a result of Shifra and Pua's fear of the Lord. If Moses hadn't been born, he wouldn't have led the people who formed the nation who eventually produced the Savior of the world. So everything, everything in the Bible hinges on the faithfulness of midwives doing what? Preaching and teaching and doing ministry? No. By being good midwives. A good midwife, being a good midwife, is what keeps Jesus and, and the entire trajectory of the story moving forward. Isn't that amazing? Now, there are some people, um, especially non-Christians, but some Christians actually get troubled by this story too. So if you, um, if you recall in the story, they get called before Pharaoh... Um, and in fact, let's, if I go over the story again here for you really quick, new king rises up over Egypt. He doesn't know Joseph. And, and Joseph is where we left off at the end of Genesis. King decides there's too many Israelites, decides to afflict the people with heavy labor, thinking if they're really tired at the end of the day, maybe we won't have too many Israelites. Um, very subtle plan, um, but it didn't work. The more work he gave them, uh, the more they multiplied. And so... New king sees a problem, tries to fix it, tries to, he tries to do a wicked thing in secret. He tries to do it uh, through back channels without having to admit what he wants. Um, and then he comes up with plan 2.0. The king couldn't make the problem go away with increased labor, so he comes up with a new plan. He goes to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, and tells them to kill all the male babies. But they don't do this. The king summons them and questions their actions. They explain, and God deals well with the women. King's plan, version 3.0, which is where the story leaves off. The king has to move his plan into the public eye. He makes a public decree that the Hebrew boys are to be killed. Now, that's how you expose injustice, right? You make it come into the light so that everyone has to see it. Everyone can, uh, everyone can hear the wickedness of this decree. Now, some people, as I was starting to say before, are concerned by the behavior of these two women when the Pharaoh questions them. Because he says, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, I heard a couple people chuckle. <laughs> Do we think this is entirely true? Now, here comes the problem. Uh, the objection that 
some Christians have, and a lot of non-Christians have when they read this, is they say, um, the Bible seems to be praising these women for lying. Now, isn't that, a, isn't that an issue? And if that's troubling you, if that's stopping you from enjoying the story, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I want to give you three thoughts. First, it is unlikely, but it is possible, that they are telling the truth. They could have cleverly arranged to have left the room when they thought the woman was about to give birth and waited to come back in until it was too late. So if you really, really need it to be, they were not bending the truth at all. That's still kind of a little deceptive, but uh, they were strictly telling the truth to Pharaoh. Um, Now this assumes that the instruction was to secretly kill the baby before the mother could see it, uh, which does not seem to be uh, seen in the text. Now second is probably the more convincing argument that we should consider is that we might suggest that these women prioritized the sixth commandment, the preservation of life, over the ninth commandment, preservation of truth, uh, which nearly everyone would affirm. And the classic kind of ethical dilemma that people point to here is uh, if you were in, uh, in Germany in, in World War II and you were hiding Jews in your attic and the SS comes to your door uh, and says, do you have uh, Jews in your house? Is it morally wrong as a Christian to say no? And that's an ethical debate, and I think most Christians who were living in that era uh, came down on the same side of that as Shifra and Pua. And it's, it's, it's a third possibility, which uh, we won't, uh, you know, I think the first two are enough. We're going we're gonna to skip the third possibility. Because I, I, I actually would say the second possibility is right where we would where we'd see it. Sometimes, you know, that's what an ethical dilemma is when we pit morals against each other. And, and clearly, and this is the point, is that we see how God deals with them at the end. So God makes the final moral judgment here. And God deals well with them. He blesses them and gives them families. Um, so uh, if you have uh, an ethical issue with this still, I can, you know, pray about it, think about it but also know that God has spoken and ruled on it. Um, so that kind of settles the debate. And so the final uh, aspect of this story that we want to consider is what does this story mean for us? Um, it's a simple story. It's a relatively short story, but we want to consider, uh, you know, what are the implications of Shifra and Pua for a 21st century American Christian? And I think some of you may be picking up on it already, especially if you happen to be a midwife um, and you happen to get a really obscure order. Um, but more specifically, or more, I guess more generally, rather, uh, this story should assure us that no matter what we tell ourselves, no matter what our culture tells us, no matter what our family or the people around us tell us, our significance comes from our relation to the Lord. It does not come from our gender, our race, culture, class, vocation, or any other metric which humankind has established to rank and rate each other. It comes from our fear of the Lord, and that's what this story tells us uh, in a resounding uh, clarity. Now, this story is good news for some of us, and it's going to be bad news or harder to hear news for others. It's good news for you if you have a very... Uh, meek and humble job, uh, and you've um, you don't do well financially. You know you're you're middle class, you're lower class. You feel like you work every day at a meaningless job, um, but then you come and read this passage and you find out that God 
God sees your work as meaningful kingdom work if you're in right relationship with him. That's great news. That's good news. That's gospel news. But this might be bad news if you spend all of your time chasing prestige and titles that the world gives you. If you've invested your identity so heavily in what other people tell you matters rather than what God says matters, this story might rub you the wrong way. And it's meant to. And so, and, and finally, I would suggest to you that this story means that we should preach and we should teach and we should live in a way that reflects this. And so here's, here's your question. If you're a note taker, which we have on the back of our bulletin now, this is the question you need to ask yourself for the story. How would your life need to change in order to bestow dignity on everyone's work? Or, I'll say it again, how would your life need to change in order to bestow dignity on everyone's work? And that might include your own. What God-given dignity and value and purpose is there in yours? If you're an engineer and you build bridges, how many thousands of people are served by a bridge that's, uh, that's designed by an engineer? If you work as a cashier in customer service, how many people's day do you have a chance to make better? I mean, that could be kingdom work one person at a time. And that's actually the way that Jesus works. Uh, and so perhaps you're familiar with this. You know, perhaps you know this already. You already feel this sense of confidence. Then I challenge you in this way. Who do you know that needs to hear this? Who's feeling down about uh, their work? Or who's chasing the wrong thing with their work? Who's looking for their identity uh, through vocation? Um, or, or who feels like their ministry is lesser because they are not serving in a paid church position? The best, the best theologians I know don't work for churches. In fact, many people don't realize this. C.S. Lewis was not a paid theologian. He had a day job. That's interesting, right? Because everybody reads, almost everybody reads C.S. Lewis. But he had a day job teaching, uh, teaching English at Oxford. And the final thing I'll say is that this is not an isolated incident in the Bible. When we turn to the New Testament, we see Jesus uh, not only continue but um, declare emphatically this same criteria. There are a couple examples that, that I thought of. You know, John chapter 4, which we just read this summer. Jesus bestows dignity on the woman at the well. He does not define her by her gender, race, or social class, all of which were barriers for their conversation. But he speaks to her in a way that sees past those things. And in John, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Mark, chapter 12, uh, Jesus interacts with the woman who offers two coins. And he says that this woman gave a greater offering than other. Now, how can he say that? Because it's her relationship to the Lord that defines the value of her offering. It's not the quantity. Uh, and this is, this is life-changing uh, news for many of us that I think even those of us in the pews of the church for many, many years need to hear this again and again and again. And so we learn uh, to be bold and to serve God well in our jobs, no matter what our jobs are, and do our work, whatever your work is, in a way that honors and glorifies God. But we also learn that whatever work we do in the name of the Lord and in the fear of the Lord is kingdom work. And so my prayer today is that we would be people who define ourselves by our relationship to the Lord and people who teach others to do the same.
Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for for including Shifra and Pua by name in your word. Uh, we thank you for their boldness and for their example uh, and the wisdom of, uh, of your word that, that teaches us uh, where our value is found, where our treasure is. We also lift up uh, those in need this morning for uh, Jayla Terry, who's uh, released from Children's Hospital. Uh, we pray that we thank you for, for that and we pray for continued healing. Uh, we pray uh, Christian love and sympathy for the family of Bob Schubert, whose service is later today. And we, uh, we lift up countless others. Uh, Mindy Nagel's mother, um, or father who is in the hospital, uh, for Jan Schuler and her mother, B, for Becky Thomas and her recovery, uh, for Caroline Berman's son, for Greg Leisure, and for Mark Bruin, who has uh, surgery coming up this week. We lift all these into your capable hands. We, we pray with confidence and we pray in the, in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit that you would bring uh, healing and comfort to those that are afflicted and that you would send us to be uh, uh, fellow, uh, fellow Christians to these people, that we would bear their burdens alongside of them. We uh, ask you for all of these things as we join together and pray. Dear God, make us into your community for your glory. Connect us in Jesus, no matter our differences. Lead us to serve the world like Jesus, no matter the cost. Help us to celebrate you, no matter the circumstances. We need you, Holy Spirit, to empower us for greater works than Jesus. Amen.